It's the Brexit Breakdown Podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. Hello and welcome to this first Brexit Breakdown Podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. I'm James Miller, journalist, broadcaster, author, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit. This week, I was joined by the big boss of UK and a Changing Europe. They are the people funding this, making this. They know lots and lots about Brexit. And the boss there is Anand Menon, Professor Anand Menon, no less. He may be the most impactful wonk in the country. He won some award for like having the most impact in the country. And our guest was Matt Chorley editor of the red box email uh, from the times one of many morning emails these days he used to run the uh, mail online political desk but he dumped that to go to the times red box yeah we talked about uh, brexit we talked about the media we talked about politics who's good who's not there's lots of good stuff in here we talked about the countryside we talked about whether people in the west country are always drunk on cider but uh, I started with um, a very simple question for Matt. Matt, Brexit. What do you think of that? Well, uh, professionally, it's quite boring, but we're not allowed to say that. So it's Why, obviously anyway, fascinating and deeply important. Let's stop you there. Why is it boring? <clears throat> because... Uh, well, maybe this is what happens when something comes back to Parliament, is that instead of it being about the thing that people thought it was about, you know, there was concerns about uh, jobs or immigration or, you know, quality of life or sovereignty, mm. or whatever, it ends up being about uh, a complicated vote on who's on a committee or a Henry VIII powers. And it's sort of slightly... It get, the longer it goes on, the further away it seems to be about addressing any of the concerns that people had at the beginning. Coupled with, I think, everything being treated with equal degrees of sort of importance and significance. So uh, the leak from the Home Office, which... This is over the immigration Over the, the immigration, immigration the, 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 An idea that they were looking at for immigration. Yeah. We knew was uh, old. It had been through several iterations since. We knew was incompatible with the wider plan for a transition deal and the EU wouldn't accept it. And yet it's sort of treated as a sort of bombshell. Uh, it's just, for me, it's just another thing that goes in the pile with all the other stuff. And at some point, uh, when they overcome the issue with the money, essentially there's one deal that we're going to get, and that's the one that Brussels offers us. And I just feel like there's a whole industry of stuff. You know, Boris Johnson's article is another one of just ideas which are floating out there and they all get treated with and you know we've already seen with Boris Johnson he puts out this 4,000 word manifesto of what he wants and within 48 hours he's capitulated but it's um, good for business isn't it well you say that actually interestingly I think generally and certainly the Times saw big rises in sales immediately after the referendum I think we were quite lucky in a way that because the Times backed remain but not in a particularly it was you know on balance mainly because that's where the readers were but it's meant that we've been able to be quite honest in the coverage of it in a way that other parts of the media who backed Brexit still have to pretend that everything is going swimmingly well and is brilliant and 
it's all gonna be all right in the end but we so so one day we might have a sort of remainery front page story and the next day we might have a more brexity one so it's been good in that sense actually i found even on red box the morning email that i do aimed at people who are interested in politics stories about brexit get clicked on less than other stories there's a problem here then surely because you're saying it's boring. It's not boring. This is like massive. The whole country is going to like, oh, no, co- no, no, like no. collapse in two years' time. I don't disagree. But if the, the media are really doing something imp- wrong, but it's really there, important. They? But um, I don't. I think there's always a danger that the more important something is, that newspapers or TV uh, news channels decide it's going to have a double page spread. Yeah. And then we'll find stuff to, you know, it has, because it's important, it has to have two double page spreads, or it has to take up the first 10 minutes of the news. And until something actually significant happens, I think, I think, just think we're clobbering people with this end. Yeah. That's why actually the Boris Johnson thing is interesting, because actually it's nothing to do with Brexit. It's to do with a celebrity larking about and being naughty. Right. But then, so the media are doing something wrong, is essentially what you're saying. Well, yeah, maybe actually the media are doing what they should be doing, which is, getting stuck into the granular detail of it and holding the government to account and yeah. following this process in a way that maybe they don't normally. True. But yeah. I, I'm, just not, I'm just not sure the public are particularly switched onto it. Um, this makes you, as director of UK and Changing Europe, the most boring man boring in the country chief. then. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Boring. boring and proud. But do you concern that it's boring? I think there are bits of it that are very, very techy indeed. I mean, we did a conference last week on the Great Repeal Bill, and I must admit there were half of it that I just didn't understand as the lawyers got going. I sat there thinking... <laughs> Shh, don't do that. <laughs> it was just really, really technical. It, the bottom line of Brexit is it changes our country. I mean, yeah. it, it changes our politics profoundly, and it changes our, our, our economy profoundly. So that's what you've got to keep your eye on, is that for all this technical stuff now, at the end, it's going to have massive significance. And I think the trick is to try and link the two. Yeah, all the time, and it's quite hard to do. But that's how to keep it interesting and relevant. So, is is the media failing, or is it traditional media that's failing on this? I think actually, what it is is basically nothing is happening at the moment. Yeah. So, but that's interesting we're, we're because it's months, only like eighteen months still. Really, but we're eighteen months or a bit less since we voted to leave. Nothing has really happened. Yeah, the talks, all of the action is actually happening in Brussels when yeah. nothing is happening. Right. And so in the meantime, because of this sense of this being so massive that we have to keep reporting about it because it is so massive and it is going to affect the country. So we end up reporting on things. So like the crunch vote on the EU withdrawal bill ended yeah. up being nothing of the sort. And even yes. even when Anna Subri at the beginning of that week went on the radio and said, no, I'm not going to rebel on it. I mean, later on, we'll I'll look at the amendments. <laughs> yes. Even then, we still had four days of whipping up crunch vote for the government it's like the phony war isn't it with twitter and online media it's just everyone's going mad while on the ground nothing is nothing is going yeah, yeah. so when you say we whipped it up are you guilty of it well no because i actually found it quite dull in fact i had conversations with journalists in the so it's all the other journalists that do it but not you well no, no but actually what happened was when the uh, home office leak came out yeah the next day i topped the email on nicholas sturgeon's speech in the scottish parliament Yes. Because I felt that the Home Office thing, in the end, isn't going to... In, in a month's time, six months' time, it's not going to make any difference. And I thought, actually, Nicola Sturgeon basically abandoning independence and coming up, you know, laying out a whole new mm. thing. And it's it's been the most opened, most clicked-on email I've done since we've been back from the right. summer. First of all, thank you. This podcast is going to do amazing. Now I can see you said Nicola Sturgeon's abandoned independence. We'll get loads, <laughs> loads of listens from that. This is brilliant. Um, secondly, really, when you make that decision about what to put at the top of your 
email, and obviously every day there must be a Brexit story you could put at the top of the email, is it based on news value? Is it based on who you can have a joke about? Uh, no, it is based on news value first, because like, if I do Brexit every day yeah. at the top, by Friday people will have stopped opening it. So I think it's about having a mixture. But I do think you also need to you need to respect your readers enough to say, this actually matters. Yeah. And that doesn't. You know, if you treat everything as being of equal importance, when something actually important happens, they won't notice. Um, and that must be interesting from a uh, morning email point of view, because they have to trust you, because it's very personal. It's your email. Yeah. Um, it's not just coming. There's one that comes from the Times with the top stories, and I just delete that straight because away. Because that's just a sort of round of, of um, you know of headlines. Yeah. So there's quite a lot of responsibility there. Yeah. You know, you've got a, a, and you've got a relationship with your readers that other journalists perhaps don't have. Yeah. No. It was one of the things that surprised me when I started doing it was the relationship that you build because you are personally let like, a picture of me at the top and it, yeah. my name or whatever. And it's very much in my voice, and so you do. But you know, you're landing in people's inboxes alongside their emails from their friends and family and. Waitrose and all that sort of thing, and you give away mugs, and we give away mugs, which are which are right. unfathomably popular. But yeah, so building up that relationship, I think, is really important. And for instance, after the terror attack happened in Westminster, mm. readers got readers emailed, replied to that morning's email to see if I was all right. Yeah. Uh, what is nice about doing this for the Times, you can be slightly more reflective. You can sort of, mm. uh, and being able to make jokes is um, one of the perks of the job. Um, got any good Brexit jokes? Are there good Brexit jokes? Come on, Anand, you must have heard some Brexit jokes. Have you, have you not got Brexit jokes? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. On. Are there any good Brexit jokes? Oh, this is put a... that in tomorrow, I think, in the newsletter. This is a problem with politics today, then. Because part of the thing, obviously, I did the Scottish referendum, and it wasn't very funny. I mean, you know, Scotland has a sense of humour, but there was really not enough humour in the Scottish referendum. Here we've got Brexit. I mean, you again, do want to draw parallels between the Brexit referendum and the Scottish referendum. But again, where's the, why are people not making jokes about it? Where's the humour? Humor. There's a kind of wartime humour around Brexit, isn't there? Is there? I mean, this is a stoic humour. There's nothing sort of laugh out loud funny that I've heard. If people are genuinely like, can't as Matt says, can't take it five days in a row. If you like, <laughs> uh, given your job is Brexit five days in a row, every time you walk into a room, you go, "Hello, I'm Mr. Brexit." Do people just yawn and turn away, or have you got some? Well, sort the room's of... usually empty. <laughs> <laughs> Have you got some sort of Brexit joke to diffuse the situation? Oh, yeah, I am Mr. Brexit, but ha, ha, ha. No, but I'm forming a plan there that we right. might have a website section. Well, no, I, found, I found one. I found one. So this is one I wrote uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, this was in the email. As the nights draw in with the onset of autumn, the coming months will be dominated by two things, Bake Off and Brexit. One is a bunch of amateurs struggling with a half-baked idea, holding back the tears as they struggle to work out whether they'll have a cake or eat it after weeks of fought drama. The other is a cooking show on Channel 4 which starts tonight. No. You can dub that on. So when yeah, it came to the election, do you think it was a Brexit election or actually no, it, it wasn't at I all? I don't think it was. I think the the only time it, it, Theresa May spoke about Brexit was as a proxy for comparison with Jeremy Corbyn. So it was who do you want going into the negotiating mm. room? Which was really the same as, uh, you can't obviously see it in the US election, who do you want taking the call at four o'clock in the morning? Mm. Because I think people think a general election about who's going to run the country and who's going to run schools and hospitals and all that sort of stuff. But why would Stoke South vote Tory then? Well, they're running the whole, uh, you could run the whole gamut of why did odd places yeah. vote. No, no, uh, absolutely. But, you know, why did um, Kensington yeah. vote Labour? Well, there we go. It, it sounds like there's a, a problem around Brexit in a way, in that people don't understand it. So it's just as well there's going to be an amazing series of podcasts setting out everything you need to know about Brexit. 
Um, it also sounds like there is some issue with the media. There's some sort of disconnect that people either didn't understand what would happen afterwards or weren't explained to them in the round to the referendum and I'm still not having it explained to them now. Is that no, 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 no I, do, I, think, I think that latter part is unfair. I think they are having it explained to them. I think there's some quite extraordinary journalism done on the ins and outs of customs arrangements and the Irish border and, uh, you know, how many treaties we need. That actually there are... The, the sort of journalism now being done actually by political journalists is much more involved and complex than previously political journalism had basically amounted to Tony Blair and Gordon Brown have fallen out again. Okay. So I think yeah. there is there, the the journalism actually I think has been very good. The, you know, in papers always I'd say like the Times, the FT as well. There are lots of very good political you know, Politico, mm-hmm. uh, their stuff coming out of Brussels um, is very good journalism. I'm just not sure that it's being lapped up by people who <laughs> can't understand why it was being. It it's a different sort of audience, isn't it? Yes. I mean, Ian Dunt did that three-parter the other week on the EEA option, and it was just techie. Yeah. But yeah. You saw the number of clicks it was getting. You saw the number of likes it was getting. You thought, who is reading this in detail? Um, is there a problem then with the politics? Is it the politicians to blame? They didn't explain it, and they're still well, not explaining it. I think what's interesting is that the political debate is so poor because the Labour Party is in possibly even more of a mess on it than... Yeah. The Conservative Party is. Because actually the Conservative Party is at least united around the position that we are leaving. Yes. And Theresa May needs to get the best deal she can. Yeah. And, you know, even Boris Johnson's mucking about aside, they are all at least heading that direction. The Labour Party isn't. I mean, their manifesto was brilliant in that it didn't commit them to a position. Or, yeah. it, or at least it committed them to, to the benefits of the single market, which gave space for people like Chukwu Muna to... Mm. interpret that as being staying in the single market. But as a result, and let's be honest, the shadow cabinet is not a Rolls-Royce operation digging into the... De- I think Keir Starmer is very good, and actually his legal background and yeah. his being able to get his mind around all this techie stuff, yeah. I think, is important. But what you're not seeing is a sort of forensic analysis of home office preparations, trade preparations, you know, even the foreign office. And so I think some of that work as a result is being done by journalists doggedly pursuing that without the sort of cover or the lead being made by politicians. Are you, sorry, are you suggesting that the likes of Diane Abbott and Barry Gardner are not entirely on top of their brief slash their game? I think, I think, we can, I think you can listen to Jeremy Corbyn and uh, an innocent bystander might have doubts about whether or not he understands all of this. <laughs> he gets asked a question about the single market and gives the line... Mm. which is a very carefully crafted line. Yeah. And then he's asked a follow-up, and he says something which he thinks sounds a bit like what he said before, but has actually just committed them to staying in the single market beyond transition. And I think that's a, that is a massive problem if the leader of the opposition isn't on top of it. But wouldn't, if he was here now, wouldn't he turn around to you and say, well, it works? I mean, you know, Labour is getting votes from Leavers and Remainers, and actually this ambiguity, we're not the government, yeah. So it's not. I agree, to us to make and a there, is, there is an argument which says they don't need to. They just need to, in a purely political way, sit back and wait for the toys to make a mess, a complete hash of it, and they can uh, pick up the spoils. I do think that Corbyn's problem is that over time he accumulates baggage. If and when we get the next election and he's still leader, 
him being Prime Minister is a realistic prospect in a way that it didn't seem to a lot of people in June this year. And if he doesn't look like he knows what he's talking about on the big issue of the day, and actually on the big issue of the day where there are suspicions he's at odds with the young people who voted for him in hmm. June this year, you know, and does he, does he secretly support Brexit? You know, does he think that the EU is a massive corporate conspiracy against the worker and all of that sort of stuff? And so if he's fudging it and looking a bit like he's not on top of the, you know, the ins and outs of the single market, at precisely the time when there was a movement of young people who think we should be still in the single market and wish that we weren't voted to leave, I think that is a, it is a problem. But those young people were joining at exactly the time that people were running stories on how he sabotaged the income bank. Yeah. But imagine, imagine if he'd have brought the same energy and enthusiasm yeah. to the Remain campaign that he did to his own campaign this year. And that's what Labour MPs say, is that mm. if he really was that committed, if he'd had sort of, uh, I don't know, Ed Miliband's commitment to the EU, coupled with his ability to generate crowds and fire people up, yeah, then it, it could have had a completely different outcome. But isn't the weird thing that it... I mean, Labour MPs hold that against him, but his voters don't seem to. I mean... No. Well, that's the, 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 the big... The really interesting question, I think, that we're going to see as this sort of plays out, is whether or not Jeremy Corbyn can hold together this, this incredible coalition of people who always vote Labour, people who wanted him to be Prime Minister so voted for him, and people who didn't want him to be Prime Minister but voted for him anyway because they were told he wasn't going to be Prime Minister. And can he keep that together? Yeah. What's your hunch? Does he lose that last group if he goes into the next election on level peggings with the Tories in the polls? I, th- I, think, it, I think you could... Ignore Brexit, ignore Jeremy Corbyn, ignore Theresa May, and just focus on the fact the next election will be the fourth time the Tories have tried to win an election. And I think for them, any party doing that mm. is really tough. As Gordon Brown found in yeah. uh, 2010, and uh, the Tories, you know, in even even the Tories in '92 did it. Against yeah. the odds and against expectations, although that was that was third, that it. was a third election. Yeah, the, Tories yeah. can do it; they can win yeah. four times. Yeah, there's no this counter argument that Labour need to lose four times before they finally wake up and get their act together. Yeah, and that would be the next election. Whenever that's going to be, when's it going to be? When's the next election? I think it goes the full term. And who's contesting it? Is it Corbyn versus me? I don't think you should rule out the possibility that Theresa May is still there. If you are Prime Minister, you don't give that up just because it's the polite thing to do or because people like me <laughs> yeah. keep writing that she ought to. Yeah. And people say, oh, she'll have to go in March 2019 to give, or, or autumn 2019, post-Brexit, to give a new person time to bed in. Mm. Well, why does she in the summer of 2019, if she's still bubbling along neck and neck with the Labour Party, having done the deal and we've got a transition and there's now a way out of Brexit, why does she think, well, it's probably the polite thing for me to do now, to step aside to give somebody, some un, still unknown person, because there is no, you know, there is no alternative, yes. to quote Mark Why does she step aside to make life easier for them, to give them uh, a So until somebody challenges her or something goes so catastrophically wrong that she has to stand down, I just think there is... I'm not saying it's likely or it's, it's definitely going to happen. I think there is a, a chain of events which just says she does it just because she's still there and nobody else. Boris Johnson continues to sign himself up in knots. Maybe David David Davis seems to be increasingly shut out of really? the Brexit process. Yeah. Um, unless Tom Tugendhat fa- somehow oh, finds a way yes, to go the from... Prince over the water. To go from chairing a backbench select committee to being Prime Minister in one leap. I don't see how... 
Corbyn done it. You I mean, he hasn't to, got as far as Prime Minister. You, but have, he, he to, you have to get her out. But then isn't the, the difference there that the Tory party machine is famously ruthless? I mean, I think that isn't the key point. that it, Yes, if she's running it's neck so, and neck in the polls, then that's something. If she falls so, behind in the polls, the, the Tory, Tory machine goes, right. The Tory party machine is so famously ruthless that the woman who three months ago took a 20-point poll lead <laughs> and flushed it down the toilet and lost her majority and had to do a deal with the DUP to keep her in number 10 is still there. She won the election. And it's getting stronger by the day. She won the election. Tories love winners. She won the election. That's the bottom line. She's she not lost there. the majority. She, she won the there. election. She's not there because they love winners. She's there because she's got a massive problem to sort out, which is Brexit. Yeah. And it's a total nightmare. Nobody else wants to do it. And there is nobody else who looks any better. Well... I take your point. There's nobody else looks any better. Um, but, I mean, just on that, you mentioned Tom Tugendhat. You're talking about uh, Boris and David Davis. Who's come out well from Brexit? Who's, who's, who are the winners? Who are the people who have impressed you, uh, you know, as part of the Brexit process? I mean, you mentioned Keir Starmer. Um, I think Keir Starmer's been good. I mean, he's, he, he's probably more lawyer than politician still. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if an average voter seeing him on the telly would think, oh, he's talking sense. Yeah. They'd think, oh, well, he might know what he's talking about. Well, I know what he's talking about. But mm-hmm. So I think, he, you know, in that sort of sense, he probably needs to. But, I mean, he, it's true that he has managed to weave a quite masterful Labour yes. position, which at the moment seems to be keeping everyone together. Um, and it is odd that the Labour Party voted to trigger Article 50, mm-hmm. arguably the biggest part of all this, Yes, and then voted against the natural... Uh, withdrawal bill. Withdrawal yeah. bill. I mean, I get how they then vote for amendments to the withdrawal bill, but I don't understand how they are in favour of us beginning the process of leaving, <laughs> but against us doing anything about enacting yeah. that process. I wouldn't try and understand Labour Party. But no, so, so go back to people who I think have been good. I think I'm, I'm a big Amber, fan of Amber Rudd. I think she's she's got a tough gig doing the boss's yeah. old job. Yeah. Uh, which I think she's managed to, after a few wobbles initially which I don't think all of her making. Um, I think she's managed to do that quite quietly mm. while still showing that when she does appear, yeah. she can still kick Boris. Yeah, she's got a good line in slagging off Boris. She's lines. got a good line in slagging off Boris. But in also, I mean, playing the, uh, no, I've not read Boris's card. I was a bit busy dealing with a terror, cat, terror yes. attack. That's a good, you know, I, th- I think she's very smart. I think... There was, there was this concern, I think, among some Tory MPs that she was too remainery. As time goes on, that will wear off. There is an argument that she couldn't run for leader because her majority is so small in Hastings. I, I, don't, I don't totally buy that, I think. Haven't you written about why, why you haven't bought that? I think I have. Somebody, you, did, you, you somebody really, did at a morning really, email this yeah, week. You, did, you, you, you really did. You, <laughs> There's so many of these days, I can't keep really up with which one's which. You really do read box. Yeah, and I think there are, there are senior Tories who think it's not an issue, and that uh, if she was a party leader and Prime Minister going into an election, her vote would go up. Yeah. And if it didn't, then it means they're losing the election anyway. So True. And God knows who knows who's safe anymore. Um, you put on events all the time, Anand. Who's impressed you? Who, who's uh, come out of this process sort of surprised you, perhaps? Well, actually... And without being craven here, I think a lot of journalists have impressed me in this process. Because oh, yeah. Any in particular? That... You're sitting in a room with two journalists. Any in particular, Alan? Well, the Any... two in the room, obviously, yes. head, well done. head and shoulders above the rest. But I think there's been a lot of very good coverage, actually, of this. I mean, as you were saying, a lot of the forensic stuff on particular industries, 
I think some of the newspapers are starting to look at regions of that. I think one of the interesting things about Brexit for me is we're learning about our country. Yeah. Things that we never knew before about how our economy works. Oh, my God, we've got a car industry and it exports and, you know, some mm. doors cross the channel three times before they're finished. These are the sort of things we no one knew yeah. beforehand. And I think actually... I still don't understand that. Why, well, I don't why understand why. just fix a door? No, no, absolutely. So. But... It's been a real learning process about Britain, and actually, I think I think the Times had a very good referendum and post-referendum. I have to say, for the reasons you said, I think a lot of the other papers, you kind of stopped reading them because you knew they had a line, yeah, and it was clear, and the line determined everything. Uh, but I think a lot of them have adapted post-referendum. Yeah, there's been a bit of a crisis on both sides, saying, "Hang on a sec, people don't trust us anymore." And I think post-referendum coverage has been overall rather good. Yeah, um, well done, journalists. I'd also say. Well, I would pay the compliment, obviously, to Manange. But to I think there's a there's been a sort of expansion of I mean, despite what Michael Gove said of having had yes. enough of experts, I think some of the uh, commentary and analysis and reports out of it's interesting, you know, think tanks that used to be all the rage, yeah, because they did a lot of social policy, or whatever. It seems to have slightly died back, and the ones who are really getting stuck into Brexit. I mean, we have sometimes quite techie pieces in the Red Box email written by think tanks and organisations like UK and Change in Europe, but they, they're they fulfilling a really interesting role of drilling it. And it's curious what yeah. people pick up on. We did this thing, this Citizens' Assembly thing in Manchester, oh, yeah. 50 members of the yeah. public a couple of weekends ago, and this lady came up and sort of stuck her hand up halfway through and said, I'm a bit worried about this uh, Henry VIII stuff, to be honest. It's, it's, it's troubling <laughs> me that this is like changing our country. What is it? And I thought, wow. She, this thought, is... she thought everyone had to have six Yeah, exactly. Fair enough. <laughs> Um, right, listen, let's do the features, the features, the exciting features. Uh, first of all, it's best thing, worst thing. Best thing! Oh. Worst thing. What's going to be the best thing about Brexit, Matt? I think Alan touched on it uh, a minute ago. I think people learning about the country and what the country is actually like. What we saw immediately after the referendum results, particularly in London... Yeah. was this, well, I don't understand it. I've never met anyone who's voted for Brexit. Yes. Um, because I remember a few nights after the referendum, maybe a week or so after the referendum, there was a reception on the terrace in Parliament, which is about as sort of well, metropolitan done, elite. bubble yeah, you as you win, can yeah. get. And um, I was talking to somebody who actually I didn't, I didn't even know who she was. And she started doing this, you know, I don't yeah. know anyone. It was absolute nonsense. I've never met anyone who voted Brexit, and I started. I, I started telling her quite bluntly that that is the pro- that is the problem. That <laughs> yes. is that is the entire problem. And when I live, I'm from Somerset, mm. and most, well, not most, a lot of my friends and family from Somerset voted Leave. Mm. You know, the, the West Country in particular was a was uh, a high vote for Leave, but they're not all. Well, no, I was going to say I don't even need the word all. They're not mad Nazis. Who, really? Uh, Aren't they all just drunk on cider? Isn't that what happens in the West? Well, that country? is true, but I don't think that's necessarily a no, part okay. of uh, why they vote for Brexit. So I think people rediscovering what the country is all about, yeah. and news reports and features about employment, whether you know whether it is car industries which are doing well or areas mm. which aren't doing well, and how all that is fed into um, why people voted. Uh, believe I think is I think that will be hopefully a good thing that comes out of it. And if it forces the metropolitan elite Westminster bubble or whatever we are in yeah. to be slightly more conscious of what's going on outside SW1 and outside the M25. You hear all these wonderful stories, don't you, about BBC journalists falling over each other in Hartlepool two weeks after the referendum because they were all off on a mission. Well, the, the, the poor people of um, Boston yeah. who 
I don't think I remember some. I can't remember who it was. I remember there was a TV reporter who went to Boston. And basically, their entire package was how nobody wanted to speak to them. And I just thought <laughs> it's because their vox popped out. Work. They've had yeah. enough. Well. They, they don't want to talk about why they were the most Brexit part of the country anymore. No, but I, I think that sort of sense of getting out and things like farming and fisheries for yes. a long time yes. ignored by uh, politicians and journalists because it was all taken care of in yeah. uh, the EU. And, you know, so if there was an issue with farmers, politicians would say, well, that's an EU thing. It's over there. Yeah. We, uh, journalists would think, oh, that sounds boring. And that would be the end of it. You know, the Times now has a countryside correspondent, which is a reflection of, I think, a feeling that generally is an area that we should be more uh, into. But, you know, it's not just writing about how raspberries are doing very well and, you know, Argus of sales have dropped. Because that's um, what goes on in the countryside. But, well but, done, Metropolitan Elite Man. No, no, no. Yeah, no but so, no, what, what Jerome is doing is really is getting into the issues of food, fishing and farming and all that sort of stuff around uh, around Brexit. So yeah, hopefully one, one of the good things to come out of it is that sort of sense of there is a world outside. And the worst thing? It's boring. It's boring. Okay. Uh, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> um, or, or no, like, the worst thing is that parts of it can be so boring that it switches people off to the important bits. Okay. In the unlikely event this podcast has not proved sufficiently enlightening. That's what the feature's called. In the unlikely event this podcast has not enlightened you sufficiently. What do you recommend uh, for people that want to understand Brexit? Um, well, I don't, you, you told me this could be left field. Yeah, absolutely. So, because I read it over the summer on yeah. a recommendation from a colleague, I'm going to recommend Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance, which is actually, it's, it's a memoir of a guy who was actually grew up in Ohio. But it talks, it basically exposes the bit of America that most people in this country don't know about. Yeah. And people have made a read across to similar parts of the UK where there used to be a big industry and there isn't and how that can lead to a poverty of aspiration and then they get neglected because you know there's no money there or there's no uh, how parts of a country get completely overlooked and treated as an underclass and how that then feeds into uh, the attitudes of people who live there and whose fault it is and how do you go about addressing it. Good recommendation essentially what you're saying is all the people that are outside the metropolitan elite are hillbillies well done, yeah. That's... And they all eat raspberries and are Argus. Okay, no, this, fact, is, this is good. I work. Would... This is, oh, this is amazing. Can, can you be a hillbilly as an Argus? <laughs> I don't. I've never met any hillbillies. <laughs> no, but, but, it, but what, what is interesting about him is he sort, they sort of he claims the name of it, the 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 label of hillbilly, but um, he then went on and to he went. He was the first person. He had a very chaotic home life. He was the first person in his family to go to university. Uh, I think he then went to Harvard. But he's it, it reflects on reading it, enti- you know, over the summer entirely, you know, it was about America. I know places like that in Somerset, near where I grew up. I like the idea of Somerset hillbillies. That's uh, that's how I like to envisage Somerset. Um, yeah, have you got a recommendation then? Is it your book? Is that yeah, what you're going to recommend? You can't come absolutely. on every episode and just recommend your own book. I'll let you do actually, it on this first him, no, one. No, given, given what Matt has said, there's another book by uh, Thomas Frank that's called Listen Liberal. Which, again, if you want to sort of use the US as a parallel with here, is about how the Democrats alienated the white working class in the United States and how those people were just left in abject poverty with no sort of prospects and no one looking after them as the, as the Democrats went off chasing the tech industry as their new best friends. Yeah. And it, again, you read that book and you're thinking of here. Yeah. OK. Um, your book's not out yet, though, is it? 
No, but it's well worth pre-ordering, I yeah. have to What's say. Yeah, what's it called? Brexit and British politics. Okay, but it's out in October, isn't it? Yeah. Keep oh, talking well, about you'll it. be back on before then. You can you can recommend <laughs> it. You can recommend it nearer the time. So there we go. That was interesting, wasn't it? There was some interesting recommendations. A couple of books. I strongly suspect that over the next few weeks and months there will be quite a lot of books suggested by my guests. I will attempt to collate all the recommendations in one place either on my website or on the uh, uk and a changing europe website like i say i suspect there'll be quite a lot of books i'm hoping to get some more out there suggestions one of my guests suggested uh, just by radiohead uh, although then when we recorded that podcast he didn't actually mention it on the podcast so maybe i'll just add that one in as a bonus i think it was something to do with the lyric about you do it to yourself he was not a fan of brexit it's fair to say I am aware, before we go any further, that that was three men talking about Brexit. Now listen, I am the author of a book called The Gender Agenda. That is a true fact. You can look it up on Amazon. came out this summer. I'm not just making that up. So gender balance will be achieved. Now, it might not be for a few weeks or even months, but there will be balance. I'm looking at the list of guests over the next few weeks, and there's not a huge number of women on that list. But I will get female guests. If you are a woman an expert you've got something interesting to say about brexit please do put yourself forward get in touch talking of guests over the next few weeks we've got the likes of gisela stewart we've got chukara muna lined up we've got a tory mp we've got a labor mp we've got a man who wants to set up his own party see if you can guess who that is uh, hopefully we've got a playwright a scientist uh, one of the well more than one of the uh, prime movers in the leave campaign so yeah lots to look forward to um, on that list i have to mention the music uh, because legally or something i have to tell you who it is it this week it was uh, requiem for a fish by the freak fandango orchestra they sound like fun don't they i've had quite a lot of discussion at uk and a changing europe about the music if you liked this week's music please do get in touch if you didn't like it also get in touch and i will change it i have alternatives if you want to get in touch i am at political yeti on twitter you can get me on the email i am uh what's it called? it's a really long email address uk in a changing europe podcasts at gmail.com that's uk in a changing europe podcasts at gmail.com uh you can also look at the uk and a changing europe website which is uk and eu.ac.uk or you can find them or us i suppose i mean i'm kind of part of them on twitter which is at uk and eu um, please do get in touch with feedback all very welcome if you think it's rubbish if you think it's great people you want to hear more of things you want to hear more of think it questions you want asked i am very much at your disposal for such things please do get in touch and tune in for a couple of weeks for another one of these brexit breakdown podcasts from the uk in a changing europe funded by the esrc that's the economic and social research council and with support from king's college london thank you <laughs>